Now, uh, we are in chapter 12, um, and it's uh, page 107 in your books. Um, I, I'm not going to commit to this just yet, but I'm ready to do two lessons if we want to, because the kingdom is really, um, it can be a very short lesson. Uh, and, and then the next one is last things, which can be a six-month study. And so, but we're going to try to see uh, if, 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 depending on where we are on time, we may go ahead and do uh, last things also, because I want you to see what, what the Baptist Faith and Message says and how much room there is left for different beliefs uh, and different understandings about the last things. Um, because there's a whole different approach to the last things than there is to pretty much anything else in the Bible, and, and we'll talk about that if we get there. Um, but we're going to start with the kingdom. We'll start with the article, so that's on page 107. Uh, it says, The kingdom of God indicates both his general sovereignty over the universe and his particular kingship over men who willfully acknowledge him as king. Particularly, the kingdom is the realm of salvation into which men enter by trustful, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. The full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of Jesus Christ and the end of this age. All right, so the kingdom. Um, so the, the, right, right out of the gate, the state, there, there's a statement that the kingdom kind of refers to two things. One, God's general sovereignty over the universe, and then that particular or specific kingdom that, that God is building through the redeemed. Let's talk about the general very briefly, uh, because we all kind of already understand this. God is king. This is his universe. He has made it, and he is sovereign over it. Now, sovereign does not necessarily mean that everything that happens is exactly what God wants to happen, but he has authority over everything. So God did not want Adam and Eve to sin, just like God does not want us to sin, but he has authority over that. So when Adam and Eve sinned, God was the judge. When we sin, God is the judge. And so that's what we have to understand about sovereignty is not that God dictates and controls every tiny like micro action that might happen, but he is sovereign. He has authority over those things. And so there are benefits and there are consequences, there are rewards and there are failures. There's all that that goes on, but God is sovereign over all those things. And so that's what we have to understand. Because if someone says, oh, God's all-powerful, why does he allow evil? Well, God is all-powerful, but he has also granted humanity free will. And within that free will, we have chosen to rebel against him. And so that has brought sin, that has brought suffering, that has brought ultimately death into this world. And so the evil and the bad and all the suffering that happens has to do with the sin of mankind. God could, yes, in a, in a, in a, in a swipe, God could eradicate all evil. But that would also wipe out every person who has not yet followed him as Savior. And so if, if he's going to do that, then that means right now that friend, that loved one, that person you know that's not a Christian would just have to be, be wiped out. They'd have to be judged, sent to the lake of fire right now. It all has to be over. Um, if, if God is, is, is going to end evil, that would mean a really, really drastic change. So can he do that? Yes, God can do anything. And he certainly will at one day end evil. But until that day, it is his grace and his patience that is allowing these things to roll on while people are being saved. So that brings us to the people that are being saved, the particular kingdom. The particular kingdom 
is what Jesus came to this earth to begin to build. So early on in Jesus' ministry, he told them, Rejoice, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And quite literally, he meant the kingdom of heaven is so close that you can put a hand on it. And what he was saying was that he is the kingdom. So they could literally reach out and touch Jesus. He is the kingdom. That refers more back to that general sovereignty than it does to the kingdom that God was going to build. The kingdom that God was going to build is really the, the church. It is the, the ones that are being redeemed, those that are being saved. That is that new kingdom. What God is building as from the point of Jesus' own, he is building this, this group of people who have willingly entered into a faith relationship with him and have willingly made themselves subservient to Jesus. And so that is what that kingdom is. We don't talk about the gospel. We don't talk about the church in those kinds of terms anymore. We don't, we don't think about becoming a Christian as making a vow to God. We don't really think about it in terms of willfully and lifelong submitting ourselves to his authority. We don't think about it quite in those terms. You know, we talk to somebody hey, do you want to be saved? Do you want your sins to be forgiven? You know, do you want this eternal life? But sometimes we don't really fully explain you're entering into a kingdom and you're not the king, he is. And so we are subjects to Jesus. We, we, we are submissive to him. So, you know, there's, there's been this debate about, you know, people have given it the title Lordship Salvation. I don't think it needs that title where Jesus is Savior, but in order for Him to be Savior, He also has to be Lord. And there's actually people that wouldn't agree with that, but that's what He is. He is Lord. He came to the earth with this authority. He spoke with the voice of God. He gave the commands that God Himself had been giving in the Old Testament. Jesus is God, and He is Lord. And so to interact with Him in that way is to interact with Him as both Savior and as Lord. And so the verse that they put at the bottom, it's a good time to go ahead and introduce that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Um, the context of that verse is that Jesus is talking about basic human needs. He's talking about things like shelter and clothing and food. And it, but, but he says, don't worry about those things. It, it, instead, worry about the kingdom. And then all these things, your basic human needs will be met for you. And so not only do we become part of a kingdom... But that kingdom and, and the growth of that kingdom and obedience to that kingdom becomes our top priority. That's what we have to focus on as, as we live our lives. And so that doesn't mean necessarily that you quit your job, that you abandon everything that you've been doing and you strictly just focus on you know, evangelizing or, or, or missionary work or what have you. But what that does mean is that everything you do now has a new purpose. So, are you going to go to work? Yes. But are you going to go to work just to get in there and get your paycheck and get out? Or are you going to go to work and view that as an opportunity, as a mission field? Are you going to go get groceries? Are you going to go do these other things? Whatever it is that you go to do, are you going to look at that as just the task that you have to do for that day? Or is that now an opportunity to serve the kingdom? And that's what we have to understand, is that we've been called to that kind of service. And so, it's, when he talks about the particular kingdom... 
Um, it, it talks about it being in, uh, in, is, is the realm of salvation into which men enter trustfully, childlike commitment to Jesus Christ. Christians ought to pray and to labor that the kingdom may come and God's will be done on earth. Does that sound familiar? The kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's part of the Lord's prayer. And so that's where they get that, is, is that that is part of what we should be praying. Very, very regularly we should be praying that. Now, I'm not one of these that thinks that we have to quote the Lord's Prayer every day to be a good Christian, but Jesus gave us some things to pray about because that's what the disciples asked Him. How should we pray? And Jesus gave them a few examples of how not to pray, and then He gave them the Lord's Prayer. I don't think He ever intended for disciples to quote that and think that they had prayed because Jesus, God doesn't, Jesus never told us to just do rituals for ritual's sake. Um, but when we think about the components of that prayer, those components are important things that we should always pray. You know, it starts with praise. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're praising God. And hallowed means may your name be filled up with all the glory it already has or that it already deserves. So our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, that part that I couldn't remember right then. Thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, um, that is the beginning of it. Daily bread comes later. Trespasses come after that. Deliver us from evil comes after that. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done comes at the top of that prayer. We praise God and we pray that His kingdom and His kingdom purposes come to pass. And so that's, that's very, very important. Now, I believe that we have to recognize that when we ask God for something, we are to be prepared to be part of the answer to that prayer. If you're asking God to save the souls of the lost, you ought to be prepared to be one of the ones proclaiming the gospel. I mean, that's, that's just part of it. Um, it. It would be the same as if, you know... If you were asking God, God, I'm short on money. We need some food. Lord, I pray that you provide. He's probably not. I mean, sometimes he might drop food off at your door, but more times than not, he's going to drop a job off at your door, right? And then you get to go work and you can go earn and buy that food. So what we understand is that God will make us part of the solution. And so when we're praying your kingdom come, well, at this point that is growing. Um, but there's coming a day when it will come. And we're going to talk about that in just a second. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I can't control how closely someone else follows God's will. I can't do that. I can pray that other people follow God's will. So, you know, we're supposed to pray for our president, right? We know that. We are supposed to pray for our rulers. And we need to pray that Joe Biden and those that are in charge follow God's will. We can pray that. And, and we need to pray that with earnesty and with integrity, because, you know, the immediate thing is, well, they're never going to listen to God. We, we can't think like that because it's a matter of faith. And there have been people a whole lot different than like the people that rule us now that have been changed by the gospel. And so we need to pray for them. But the one person where I have some control and some say so and, 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 and thy will be, thou will be done is me. And so I'm praying that God is sovereign in my life, that he rules in my life, that his will is what happens in my life. 
And so that's, that's definitely part of that prayer and part of how we should live. And so then he says, uh, the full consummation of the kingdom awaits the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the end of this age. Um, when Jesus comes back, different people interpret things differently, and, and, and we'll touch on that. I, I, it does appear that we will get to the next section. So uh, different people deal with that differently. There may be things that happens before. Uh, some people believe that when Jesus comes back, the kingdom is inaugurated, and that's that. We'll talk about a little bit of that. But the point is, when Jesus comes back and the, the, the end of the age happens, all of that together, then you have the kingdom of God. That means that everybody is in their forever homes, right? So, so, so those that have followed God, that's both Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, church age believers, that's everybody that's followed God. They are with God. Spoiler alert, that doesn't happen as much in heaven as it does on earth, but we'll talk about that later. But then the, the people that have chosen not to follow God, Old Testament, New Testament, church age, and whatever ages are left to come, they are in the lake of fire. And so then you have the kingdom of God on earth. You have the kingdom of God ruling and reigning, and there is no disobedience. There is no variation. God's will is truly done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the kingdom. That's what we understand. That's what we're working towards. That is the goal, is one day there will be no pain. There will be no sorrow. We read about it in Revelation 22. There will be none of those things that we associate with sin and sadness. There will be no death. It will only be God and glory. It will only be around others who have chosen to believe in God. And so that's, that's an important thing. Does anyone have any questions about the kingdom before we go to last things? All right, so move on. The exercises in, in this one, um, they, 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 are worth, they do compare earthly kingdoms to godly kingdom, or to God's kingdom and a few other things, but for the most part, they kind of track with what we have just said. So let's look at the statement for last thing. So now I'm on page 113, uh, chapter 13. Um, and, and if I find that we're not giving this a fair treatment, like we start running out of time, we will revisit it uh, next week. But let's just see what is said and specifically, you know, table the things that aren't said. Let's try to do that. Okay, so Article 10, last things. God in his own time and in his own way will bring the world to its appropriate end. You see that? There's not a whole lot of this has got to happen, this has got to happen checklists. Now, there have been a lot of preachers that have made a lot of money writing books with checklists of all the things God's got to do to end the world. This isn't that. I'm not saying those preachers are wrong, but this isn't that. This is just saying God in his own time and his own way will bring about the end of the world. There's details there, but this doesn't nail those down. And, and I'm going to talk about prophecy in general in just a second. So it says, according to his promise... Jesus will return personally and visibly in the glory or in glory to the earth. No matter what you read, how you read it, how you interpret it, Jesus is coming back. He said he was coming back. So that's abundantly clear and that's part of our statement. The dead will be raised, another thing that's abundantly clear stated in multiple places, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. Another thing that was said in multiple places, multiple books of the New Testament. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. 
the righteous uh, in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. All right, so let's look at some of these things. Um, let's start with prophecy, just in general. Most of the rest of the Bible, it is my firm belief that we can understand it. We can look at context to help us understand it. We can look at historical backgrounds. We, we can look at the language itself. Um, we, we can use the tools at our disposal to understand it and say, this is what the Bible says. I do believe that. So I believe in a literal approach to the Bible. I don't believe in figurative approaches because then figurative approaches are very subject to people's opinions. Uh, I believe in a literal approach. If the Bible says that Jesus was God's son, I don't believe that figuratively. I believe that literally. He was God's son. He is God. He is just like God. So that's, that's how I understand it and believe it. So when we look at prophecy, we have to approach it with humility. So let me preface this by saying there's some 200 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. From our perspective, we go back and read those prophecies. It seems very clear that Jesus of Nazareth, the subject of the four Gospels in the New Testament, that that man fulfills those prophecies. It seems very clear to us from our perspective on this side of the cross. But the Jews, who were a people of the book, who I don't know of a single time in all of Christianity, Christians have never been as devoted to the, to, to the Bible as the Jews were devoted to the Old Testament. They memorized it. They wore it in pouches on their head. They knew the Word of God backwards and forwards. And I'm not just talking about the priests. I'm talking about most of the people knew the Word of God very thoroughly. They missed Jesus. They didn't understand Him when, when they heard Him. They didn't recognize Him when they, when they saw Him. And when they had an opportunity to receive Him, they had Him crucified instead. So... Prophecy is, on this side of prophecy, it's very difficult to really nail down and understand and say, yes, this is absolutely what this means. Because I read Psalm 22. I can't help but see that this is talking about crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't even invented when Psalm 22 was written, right? And, and so when I look at that, I say, you know what, this is very obvious to me, but it must have been very difficult for them to see and understand. And so when we look at the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, the things that we're still looking towards, what I say is it's like looking at a mountain range. You can see all the peaks of a mountain, but you don't know what's going on in, in between. You don't know what's going on in the valleys. The prophecies are like peaks, so they do give us things that we know, okay, so this is clearly something that's going to happen. Jesus Christ is going to return. That's clearly one of the peaks. What happens between now and when Jesus returns? There's a lot of mystery there. There's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't tell us. It tells us what we need to know. Okay, so Jesus is going to return. The dead are going to be raised. Everybody's going to be judged. Eternity is going to happen. Those things we know, like really clearly, those things we know. But there's a lot in between that we just simply don't know. And even when it says this happens and then this happens... Well, we can see from the, the Old Testament prophecies that have already been fulfilled that there may be 100, 200, 300 year gaps between this happens and then this happens. And so prophecy has to be approached with humility. 
We have to be humble about what we say is going to happen. And we have to allow for there to be some discussion. But I think we also have to be sure not to tie our pride up in what prophecy actually means. When you tie your pride up into it, that's when people start arguing about things. And, 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 and let me share something that, that, that happened to me. And I think some of y'all have heard this story. Others haven't. I still find it funny. I don't know. Y'all laugh if you want to when it's all said and done. All right. So I was teaching on last things. Now, full disclosure, I am one of the few people. Um, this is called traditional premillennialism. And so it's an old belief, but things have changed in the last couple of hundred years. So the old traditional premillennium belief is that we're, the church will be present for the rapture. The whole, I mean, the present will be, the, the church will be present for the tribulation, all of it. Um, and I get that, my primary passage for that is in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus describes the great tribulation, and then he says, after the tribulation of those days, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great glory. Uh, he will come and he will gather the elect from the four, wind, uh, from, from the four winds. And, and so that seems to be a description of the rapture. And no matter who, who, where they believe, they say, yes, this is a description of the rapture. But Jesus says, after the tribulation of those days. So it seems to me like after the tribulation, the church is gathered. That's the only place where I see chronology, but I will remind you what I just said. In the Old Testament, there is a statement, and it says, after this, there was this, and that might be 300 years after. And so, I, I say this with humility, but I believe the church may be present during the tribulation, and I think we need to be getting ready for that. I think we need to be getting ready to make the choices that Christians are going to have to make during the tribulation if we're actually here. We do know enough to know that Christians will be put in a position where they've got to decide between their life and their faith, their family's life and their faith, their finances for sure and their faith, and we, we've got to go ahead and be prepared for those. There's no harm in preparing and then getting raptured out beforehand. And when I was at school, when I was at college, we had a professor that believed what I believe, and I didn't believe that at the time. Um, and then we had professors that believed what most Southern Baptists now believe, that, that you're going to be raptured before the tribulation. And those guys demonstrated how you approach all that with humility. So Dr. Taylor was the professor that believed that the church was going to be there for the tribulation. Dr. Yance was the professor that believed in the pre-tribulation rapture, that we're not going to be there for that. And so sometimes they would just prank each other. And so one would go in and, and write on their board, um, class will meet at three o'clock on Friday. In case of the rapture, Dr. Taylor will be presiding because he believed he was going to say. And so that, that is how you approach that. This is what I think. This is what somebody else thinks. I'm not going to argue with you on it because quite honestly, there's a lot of really smart people, and this is where the story's going, there's a lot of really smart people that believe one way, and there's a lot of really smart people that believe a different way. And so we have to be humble about these things. So I was teaching on a, uh, it was a Wednesday night Bible study, and I had just went through all this humility stuff. I had just went through all this mountain range stuff, and I went through all this stuff where you've got to be fair, you've got to present both sides. 
you should know there are people in the church that teach that the church is going to be gathered together in, in, in an event called the rapture, and they will leave before the tribulation. There are people that teach that they're going to leave in the middle of the tribulation. There are people that teach they're going to leave at the end of the tribulation. It's possible all of us are wrong. I mean, we have to be humble about this. And so I've taught this thing, and I've did the humility speech, and, and I didn't see it coming. I just didn't see it coming. But apparently there was a lady in that church that was just getting mad, like mad. And so she said something, like during the service and then finished up after the service, but she told me in no uncertain terms that Dr. David Jeremiah had said that the rapture happens before the tribulation and Dr. David Jeremiah would not be wrong on this and that I might need to hit the books again and study a little more before I start saying things like this. Well, I, I was pretty flabbergasted. I, you know, probably said something about humility again and then tried to, tried to get out of that. Um, but that's the point. That's the point. We've got to be humble about these things because there are things that we know for a fact happen. We may not even know when those things happen, but we have to be humble. We have to approach these things in a way to where this isn't a dividing issue. You might divide over how you get saved. If, 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 if one group says you're going to get saved by obeying the church and doing the things the church says, and another group says you're going to get saved by trusting in Jesus Christ, that's a divisive issue right there. That was the Catholic Church and Protestants. So that was a divisive issue. That was a, that was a fork in the road, and we had to make that split. We don't have to make that split over prophecy. We don't. Unless somebody says Jesus isn't coming back at all, there is that group out there, and we're not split with them either. Um, I don't want to get into that right now. But anyway, the point is, we got to be humble. This is one area in the Bible where you just have to approach it with humility and say the things that need to be said and let the other things work themselves out. And that's what I believe that this statement does. It says the things that need to be said. Is Jesus coming back? Yes. He's made that abundantly clear. In fact, um, this passage that, that it does quote here at the bottom, John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. Your heart must not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If not, I would have told you. Um, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Jesus himself said he's coming back. We have other statements like that. We know that in the book of Acts, when um, Jesus leaves, angels come down and they say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand staring in the sky? The same Jesus who has left you will return in like manner. We've got it all over the Bible that Jesus is coming back. And that's one of the statements in the Baptist faith and message. Jesus is coming back. We also know that God's going to end this current age, this current world. That doesn't mean that there's going to be no more creation, that there's not going to be anything else that exists, but God's going to bring an end to it. And we all know this has to come to an end. We all know that without divine intervention, the world will continue to veer further and further away from God. We, know, we can see that. Like That is easily demonstrated. We know that we're going to move further and further away from God. And so we know that this has to come to an end at some point. Well, God has said that it will. And so that's one of the statements. Jesus is going to return. It does state personally and visibly in glory to the earth because in the places where it talks about Jesus returning to the earth, it always talks about in a personal, physical, visible, and, might I add, victorious way. 
That statement doesn't have that in it, but he does come back. When Jesus was on this earth the first time, he was, as John the Baptist described him, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus returns, he is the Son of God with fire in his eyes, a sword coming out of his mouth. He is judging the world for its sin. He is banishing evil from this world, and he is establishing his kingdom. So he came first as a servant to seek and save that which is lost. He came not to, to, to be served, but to serve. He came to establish salvation. When he comes back, he is coming back in a different office. He is no longer the sacrifice. He is the king. When he comes back, it will be different. I don't want to go as far as to say he will be a military leader because nobody can stand against him. Are you really a fighter if nobody can fight you? And so I don't, no, nobody can stand against Jesus. So to say that he's a fighter may be a misnomer, but nobody can stand against him. We know the dead will be raised. The Bible makes that clear. Old and New Testament, there is a resurrection. Unfortunately, the Sadducees were wrong. There is a resurrection. The Bible makes that abundantly clear, and so that's in our statement. And Jesus will judge all men in righteousness. Even in the Old Testament, the Jews believed that they would be judged by God. And in the New Testament, we get more information about that. There will be a judgment. There will be a judgment, uh, a pass or fail, based on faith. There will be that judgment. The Bible also goes so far as to say that the righteous will be judged based on their works. Not to go to heaven, but the validity of our works. Jesus tells this whole story about um, a house that's being built, and some people build with stone, and some people build with bricks, some people build with wood, some people build with hay. Things will pass through the fire. What stays? That was true and that was good. The things that burn up, those things were not true and good. So the Bible tells us about this kind of judgment that will occur. Unri the unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. Whatever you call it. So you might call it hell, you might call it, the, in, in the New Testament you get words like Gehenna. Um, the, the Revelation seems to describe a lake of fire, like a final. It says that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire, and that's where people will ultimately be judged. And so that is, that is the ultimate reality for those that resist God. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. Again, Revelation tells us that God is bringing down his city and he will actually establish it on 12 pillars on the earth. But by that time, the earth is renewed and replenished and, and it has been burned away. Everything has been, been re, you know, cleansed and, re, I guess, rebooted back to pre-sin time. Um, so we understand that. But there's no problem with calling that heaven because that's where God is and where, what is heaven but where God is. And so that is where we will find our final dwelling place. So these are the things that are indisputable. Jesus coming back, the dead will be raised, everybody will be judged. Those that do not believe in Jesus Christ will eternal punishment. Those that have faith will have eternity with God. That's what Southern Baptists teach about eschatology. Uh, last things, that's it. So we, we don't say when the rapture is going to happen. We don't say anything about the millennium. We, we don't say anything about other ideas that people have about the end times. We say the things that if you're going to read the Bible, you really can't dispute. And that's what we say. And I would imagine that there are lots and lots of questions about the end times. I'm more than willing to field those questions. 
but just remember, I'm going to tell you what, what I understand, but I'm also going to approach humility and try to tell you what the alternate views are if I'm aware of them. What questions do you have? Okay, so let me tell you about a major shift. This is just a fun little interesting thing. A major shift in end-time thinking. All right, so you had, before World War I, you had a whole bunch of people that thought the world was just getting better and better and better and that we were going to eventually, like mankind was going to inaugurate in the kingdom of heaven. Like we were going to create utopia on earth. That's what they thought. Well, then World War I happens. And you have millions of people dying by guns. You have war waged by... I don't know that World War I was a bunch of evil men as much as it was just a bunch of buffoons. They didn't understand what they had going. I mean, honestly, they, they didn't understand what they were doing to each other. Um, you, you don't even blame the Germans for half the people that died because they just didn't understand that if you get shot by a gun, you're going to die. It's not like an arrow. It's not like a sword. It's not, it was the new world. It was the, it was the first truly industrialized war we ever had. By the end of it, you know, you got people dying in trenches, being buried in the dirt and used as cover for, you know, everything that's going to happen. You got the first tanks and all that kind of stuff. But people were so horrified by what happened in that four-year stretch across Europe. Nobody really believed that we were just going to get better and better until God decided to move down and be with us. Nobody believed that anymore. So that was a major shift. <clears throat> that does explain why we had a whole lot of... Because that would have been amillennialists. So amillennialists, ah being like the negative, like no millennialist. Uh, no millennium. You know, the Bible does seem to describe a millennium, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. And the, the people that were believing that, that humans were basically going to inaugurate in the kingdom of God, they were believing we were actively in the millennium and, and we were getting better and better and progressing towards the end of that in the Bible. So it wasn't that there was really, truly, strictly speaking, no millennium. They just believed they were in it and that, and that at the end of it, then God was going to move down and be with us because we'd already fixed all the things that were wrong with the world. You gotta understand, the 1800s was kind of a 17, 1800s was a rapidly advancing time. They could ignore the sins against humanity during that time, um, but they could see the progress. They could see progress in technology. They could see progress in medicine. They could see progress in, you know, the way that we communicated and interacted with the whole world. We became a global society in that century, and so, and you see what we did with that. You know, we became a global society by the end of the 1800s, and, and by 1914, we're killing each other. And so you, you can see what we did with that, but obviously that was, they thought the world was just going to keep getting better and better. People were flying late 1800s and then early 1900s, they're dropping bombs from those same planes that they thought were a miracle. So we, we understand where, where they came from. So that was a major shift. So what, and, and that did affect uh, the, the teachings around prophecy at that point. And again, that's the difference between seeing the mountaintops and seeing what's in the valleys. The world wars are clearly in the valleys, and those were clearly horrible things that changed the way that we understand and interpret Scripture. And so many things have happened like that. Questions now? Let me address one more thing, and then if there are no more questions, then I will stop. 
don't read the newspaper and then go get your Bible and try to make it match up. Don't do that. Christians have been wrong so many times by doing that. And, and I know nobody reads the newspaper anymore, but, but every headline they're like, see, here's the mark of the beast. See, this guy's the Antichrist. See, this is the sign of Jesus coming. Don't do that. Every generation of Christians from Paul on has believed they're the last generation of Christians on the earth. That's how it's supposed to be. We're supposed to live in that expectancy that Jesus could return at any moment. That's how it's supposed to be. But what we don't need to do is start trying to put our faith in an interpretation of current events. That, that's where the disconnect is. Is Jesus coming back soon? Yes. Is Jesus disappointed in the way the world is going? Absolutely. Does that mean that he's coming back tomorrow? Not that we know. I mean, we won't know. We just won't know. I mean, you could get all technical and nerdy about it and say that any day that people have ever predicted Jesus is coming back, he won't come because nobody knows. But, but just simply put, don't look at current events and, and try to mold them and make them into what God has said. There have been people that have tried to look at the beast of Revelation and say, oh, this is a helicopter, oh, this is a bomber, oh, this is that and the other. We don't need to worry with that. We, we, just, we just don't. What we need to do is trust that Jesus is coming back and know what our mission is in the meantime. Um, don't get stuck in that trap. People are going to try to convince you of all kinds of things. Um, I believe with all of my heart that the mark of the beast will be obvious to true Christians, but it will be deceptive to people that aren't true Christians. People that have been wearing the name or just you know hanging out in church or whatever, it's going to be very deceptive and they'll just jump right on it. But true Christians are going to know, hey, this is pure evil. Um, I don't think that it's a, been a vaccine. I don't think that it's a, you know, a credit card chip. I don't even think that it'll be an ID. I think it will be obviously and painfully evil for true believers. It, it will set dead set against our souls from the moment we hear about it. But it'll be very deceptive to those who, who just claim the name but don't live the life. Um, and so that, that, that's one thing. Who's the Antichrist? I won't even guess which continent he's coming from. I, I refuse to do that. Um, I do believe that it will be a real person. I do. Um, and there are people that don't. Um, but you would not... You would be very busy for a very long time trying to count the number of people who have been accused of being the Antichrist. Um, every pope, that starts the list. Every pope. Uh, and then every ruler, whether good or bad, I mean, you just, you, you go down through the list. I've seen all these little things where people break down somebody's name. I, I've only been paying attention since George W. Bush, but people will break down either that name or some other politicians. They'll break down the name, they'll put letters in there, and those letters equal 666. So obviously, based on my weird math, this is the Antichrist. No, they're not. Um... Again, that's going to be a very deceptive thing. Um, but the Bible tells us that we are children of the day, children of the light. We go with eyes wide open, we'll see, we'll know. I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to need a, a religious guru to tell you who the Antichrist is and what the mark of the beast is and, and, and when the tribulation is starting and all that kind of stuff. I just don't think you're going to need that. I think, I think that the Holy Spirit will reveal those things to you. Just like 
the Holy Spirit has always revealed in your life what is evil and what you need to stay away from, I believe he'll reveal that. All right. Questions now? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather together. I thank you for your word and the promises that it contains. Um, I pray that you help us to remember uh, and to pray about your kingdom. Let us be servants in your kingdom. Let us be willing to work for you. Uh, none of us were made to be kings. None of us were made to be nobles. We were made to be your servants, to do what you command us to do. And I pray that we do that faithfully, that we do that daily, uh, and that we give our whole heart to it. And Father, in terms of last things, I do pray that you always remind us to be humble. Let us be humble. We, we have been given news about the last days to give us hope. Let us always live in that blessed anticipation that Jesus is coming back. Whenever He comes back, however He comes back, that's, that's for you to determine. But we're going to get to see Jesus one day. Maybe we're alive. Maybe we're not part of that generation. We don't know. But that keeps us going. That's why you gave it to the early church and that's why we still get to study it today so that we have hope. We know that this world and the way it's running right now is not all that there is. You are going to change things for the very much better. And we look forward to that day. And so, Father, until our days look like your days, let us just seek for the Son of, Jesus, Son of God to return. Let us live for Him, let us serve Him, and let us long for Him. And I pray that that day comes quickly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.